this week. Author, advice columnist, and bon vivant Mallory Ortberg takes me to school on The Handmaid's Tale. This is our second entry in a two-part series of interviews I did with fabulous culture critics about the audio drama Handmaid's Tale adaptation that we ran on our sister show, Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape. You want to hear your boy get humbled? This is one of the most enlightening interviews I've done in a long time. Join me to hear it after the jump. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. We're concluding our conversation on The Handmaid's Tale just in time for Mother's Day here in these United States, which, if you're familiar with the story, right, yeesh, perhaps not the most fortunate of coincidences. I have been in Handmaid's Tale mode since last summer, buried up to my neck in the text and its various adaptations. I scoped out a literature prototype for my day job based on The Handmaid's Tale. Then I was tapped by one Dorita host Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape, which ran a Handmaid's Tale adaptation in January. And now we've got this Hulu adaptation, which continues to hurt and astonish as I watch it. It's good. They're not paying me to say this. It's, it's good. The fastest way to get up to speed on The Handmaid's Tale, if you want to be part of the cultural conversation around it, is to head on over to the Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape podcast and check out that series. It's series number six in the podcast feed. Y'all caught up? Okay. So, I was feeling a kind of existential despair in January of this year when I interviewed Mallory Ortberg, and I came to that interview with a lot of preconceived notions, which Mallory handily disabused me of. She's real good and real smart. If you haven't heard of Mallory before, boy, howdy, have I got a treat for you. She's the editor of the departed and much-beloved feminist literary humor site The Toast, she's the author of the book Texts from Jane Eyre, and she's the voice of Dear Prudence over at Slate, where she has not only a column, but a podcast. Talking with Mallory, she challenged a lot of my notions of feminist literature, and even what it means for something to be problematic. Definitely doesn't mean throw it away and never look at it, you you problems. It means you can love it, but you have to understand the cultural forces that act on it, in it, and through it. I learned a lot from talking to Mallory, and I think you will too. As with my interview with Margaret Willison, I also interviewed Mallory for Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape, and I got permission from my producers to run this interview in its full length. Check it out. Mallory Ortberg, welcome to Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me. I feel welcomed. <laughs> I wanted to start, I wanted to talk about this adaptation. The Handmaid's Tale was written, was like published originally, I think in 1985. And this adaptation is 17 years old. It's from 2000. Uh, I want to dig in with you as to what, what makes it feel so searingly relevant today. Searingly relevant. Oh man, if you're going to be relevant, I think you should sear it. You know, let's interrogate the hell out of it. Because I know I, I felt the same way, though. Like, I was listening to it, and it did not feel like, you know, there's a lot of media from that era that feels incredibly dated. I'm thinking especially of one of my favorite TV shows of all time, The the OC, which, man, you hear that, and you feel like you were in the year 2002. Like you just suddenly sprout Junko jeans and stuff? Frosted tips. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. But but not so much not so much the case with this, which I feel like is maybe a function of the BBC. I feel like they're generally always thinking like, how will this sound in a hundred years? So what is it about the handmaid's tale? Because a lot of the conversation that we've been seeing on Twitter around 
this adaptation that John Dryden did is like, oh my God, this is too real right now. And I remember thinking when we were originally slating this in 2016, like, oh, won't this be a fun cautionary tale? Yeah, I, th this is this is the part that I was a little uh, maybe nervous is too strong a word, but I, I, I feel a little differently about like the actual book itself than I think a lot of people do the actual story, the whole like, oh, it's chillingly relevant. Oh, this is about to happen. Um, I yes. So one of the things that I think makes it very much a product of its time, like very much a certain type of uh, white feminism of the 1980s is like, essentially the book is this anxiety of, what if all of the things that white people historically did to black and native people happened to middle-class college-educated white women, right? Like you've got a world where there are bans on literacy, bans on travel, where women's children are taken away from them and raised by other people, which, you know, you see in like the Indian schools of, of the 19th century, the resettlement schools, you see public hangings, um, like lynchings, um, uh, you know, you see, uh, you know, forced reproduction programs, which again is like, these are all things that have happened in North American history. I know Margaret's a Canadian writer, but uh, have some happened in Canada, some happened in the United States, um, but have never happened to white women. And then this is a book where it asks us to imagine what if it did. And that's sort of fascinating. And, and, and that's sort of not really ever been on the horizon. So it's really interesting to see that sort of anxiety of what if all the things we did to women of color specifically and especially black women happened to white women, middle-class white women, college-educated white women. Um, and so it's sort of interesting that that element of it, I almost never hear uh, discussed when people are talking about this. Do you think Atwood was, was consciously working through that when she wrote, when she wrote the book? Uh, you know, I mean, certainly it's been a long time. Uh, and I think she was very much at the time part of like a mainstream feminist movement that was really like uh, she talks a little bit about sort of like radical lesbian separatism in the book. And, and that shows up in the adaptation as well. Um, like that was a big concern of mainstream white lesbianism and er, mainstream white lesbianism, uh, feminism in Canada. Like that was an issue. Um, but there was uh, even less than there is today, a sort of like awareness of issues like intersectionality or ways in which like race impacts uh, issues of gender. So I think, Actually, the producer of the TV show that just came out had had a really fabulous thing. He was talking about why they had cast one of the handmaids uh, as a black woman. Samira Wiley is playing um, one of them. And, and he had said, you know, the book gets rid of all black people in a single sentence. And I had right. to ask They're myself. They're all exiled to National Homeland One. Right. right? I think it's in North Dakota? Uh, yeah, I think it's unclear. I think so, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, and he says, you know, and we had to ask, at what point does a TV show about racists just become a racist TV show? And so it's really interesting. Um, again, I, like, I, I don't mean to say, like, Margaret Atwood is, like, a, a, a bad racist person. I'm, I'm, I just mean it's really interesting the ways in which I think um, she worried about what if all those things happened instead of these things have happened, but they have never threatened the type of people you are writing about. Um, and I think that's fascinating. How, okay, I'm sure you've been asked this question so many times, uh, but how do you, how do you reckon with a problematic fave? Uh, I, I mean, 
Gosh, uh, I think I'm trying to think this through, too, because like I, I think Margaret Atwood's really interesting and I think she's very much a product of her time. I, I wouldn't necessarily consider her a favorite. So this for me doesn't leap out as like, oh, no, I loved The Handmaid's Tale. I was really worried about all this. Then someone mentioned there's like racist implications and then I got nervous, <laughs> uh, which I think sometimes sure. is what we mean when we say problematic fave is we're like, oh, no, I used to be able to like this thing. And now I feel like I am not allowed to. And now I have to do something. Um I don't I don't think it's do something about it but just like be aware of you know the the poison that you're letting into yeah. your body. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I I think you know just for starter just accepting of course everything is problematic and that criticism mm-hmm. is not the same thing as dismissal um that it's it's always better to look at something from another angle then it is worse, right? So, like, I think it's still worth reading The Handmaid's Tale. It's still worth listening to this adaptation and thinking about not just what was it saying about the anxieties at the time, but what does it say about our anxieties now? Like, I think that adds to it. I don't think that's something that we should be afraid of. But to just say, like, of course uh, racism exists. Of course we reproduce racism, particularly if we're white people. Uh, of course sexism and, and, and transmisogyny exist, and like all of those things are real. So when you find them, don't be surprised. Don't be disappointed um, so much as think, well, where is this coming from? What does it say about what people were afraid of at the time? What does it say about blind spots that this particular person might have had at the time? Um, what's different now? What's different with me? Um, what does this add to the story or, or what should be added to the story? And, and so I think it's more of an opportunity than it is like a, a sad thing, or at least it can be, I think. Sure. Why do reactionary politics make uh, you people know, feel safe? Everyone is profoundly driven by fear myself included. Um, and, you know, I, I think especially in the context of like North America, like we just have a, a rich history of indulging white fear, um, male fear as well, like certain other specifics, but like there's a real history, there's a real history of um, if you are afraid here is the group of people responsible um, and here's what we're going to do about it. So there's this real sense of, I think, precedence, right? Like, um, and, and that feels like an action. There's a, there's a very clear, distinct difference. There's a very clear us and them. Um, there's a really clear sense of here's what's the problem. Here's how we're going to address it. And, and then it'll be solved. I mean, um, yeah, I'm just thinking through even like the last couple of days, just this really straightforward sort of like the outside world is like we see this with Brexit. We see this with like a lot of the policies that are getting signed into effect already. Just this idea that the outside world is a problem. Um, if we can focus inward and like ensconce ourselves in a beautiful American cocoon, like wrap ourselves in like a gooey flag full of nutritious ooze, um, we will be able to just take care of ourselves, shield ourselves from predators and emerge like a glorious butterfly but it's all snake oil i the goo is snake oil the goo is oil from a snake you're quite right what elements of the republic of gilead are already part of american culture today what do you see um in this this kind of absurd parody of american culture that's already present uh, we've, we've already talked a little bit about like there's a historical precedent for 
everything in this novel, right? Even the fear of being shipped off to the colonies has parallels to the threat of being like sold further south in slave literature and slave narratives. Um, there's certainly uh, elements of, uh, I, I'm reminded there was a case a year or two ago about a, a child who um, was was staying with her white foster family despite uh, being under the jurisdiction of the Indian Child Welfare Act um, and the sort of long history of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the racial elements of like the foster care system and ways in which historically um, it's been much easier for the government to intervene and take away children from families of color, again, particularly black and native families, um, and, and essentially resettle them with um, in, the, in, the, in the system. Um, so that, that certainly jumps up, but I think again, too, there's just this, um, the thing that jumps out the most to me is the inability for like white feminists as a group. And I include myself in this to, um, step back from this idea of a universal female experience that is actually a white female experience. Um, cause like you look at the Republic of Gilead and aside from possibly Rita and Cora, um, Everyone's described explicitly as white. They've got pink faces, blonde hair, Anglo names. So there's, you know, again, like a clear, a clear racial hierarchy there. Um, but it's this world where uh, if you are a white woman reading it, you get the, I would use the word pleasure of experiencing a sense of solidarity, of shared anxiety, of a sense of we must resist this common enemy, but you've removed women of color from the story entirely. So it's a story that purports to be, this could happen to every woman in North America. Um, but of course the only women in the story, uh, again, with these two brief exceptions, uh, are, are white women, which, uh, you know, is really fascinating. Um, it's really, really fascinating. And it's worth, I think, reading it or rereading it or re-listening to it kind of with that perspective in mind um, because it, it, it's a very different experience when you do that, right? So, so do you then see The Handmaid's Tale as rather than being a cautionary tale of reactionary politics, rather being, instead of that, more being rooted in a fear of what if all of the evil done to native black and brown women by the United States came home to roost and was um, rebounded upon white women. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Ezekiel Kweku and Jane Coaston wrote a piece earlier this year uh, for MTV that was fabulous. It was about the sort of history of white conspiracy theories, uh, stuff about chemtrails, um, stuff uh, about like the government taking away everyone's guns and kind of rooting them at specific sites in black history and saying essentially Every white conspiracy theory involves something that has happened or is happening to black people. Um, and, and I think that's absolutely it, is this um, kind of convoluted, uh, you know, you, you have women in this story who are, um, uh, you know, collaborators uh, on the side of, of the men who have started the Republic. But you also have um, women who are essentially having this experience that mirrors the experience of many women of color in American history, but, but they're, they're also white. Um, and that's just, again, I just find that fascinating. And I think it's very much a part and parcel of what Ezekiel and Jane wrote about, um, that fear that, and that's so unconscious. Like, I don't believe that the book, um, 
is it is it the 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 frame at the end i believe one or two of the historians who are discussing it in the past tense um have names uh, that that would suggest that they are characters of like uh, they they are from first nations peoples is that am i remembering that correctly in so in the book i think one of the characters so in the in the audio adaptation there's only professor Piaxotto. right which i think um, is 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 a reference to a first nations i think it's possibly aztec some sort of native okay. american character yeah um and then i think the other the other character named has um more of like a northwest territories kind of um first nations name yeah, and I think that really speaks to – there's certainly – I think Margaret Atwood, especially being from Canada, which has a really different relationship to First Nations people than the United States does, um, uh, and one that I think obviously while also uh, profoundly um, – and tragically flawed is is much further along than the United States in terms of acknowledging um, the peoples uh, and their history and and what the government has done. So there's clearly like an attempt on her part to say, you know, this society is based on white supremacy. Like Mar- Margaret Atwood's not not foolish. She doesn't miss this entirely. Um, she knows that this is a book about a white supremacist society. Um, and and chooses to have at the end, and I think they refer to at some point the goddess of history figures who are in some way connected to First Nations people, um, who do not follow a patriarchal religion, um, who are interested in scholarship and in studying. So there's clearly this idea, right, that like uh, white supremacy and uh, violence against women are linked uh, and a society that encourages female flourishing um, and that like uh, allows allows for or, uh, you know, something other than white supremacy to reign is, is a better alternative, but that also is, you know, 10 pages of the book. So um, it's just, again, really interesting to see um, those two things kind of contrasted with one another, but then also to look at in the majority of the book, there just aren't any non-white people who, who get a chance to say something or experience something. They just disappear and then show up at the very end and say, good thing that's over. Um, which makes you wonder, like, what were all those people doing during the Republic of Gilead? Where's that story? And that's really, really interesting. Was there a part of the adaptation that particularly spooked you? Yes, yes. When they were um, at the, is it the Jezebel Center? Uh, the Jezebel's is the, the hotel slash brothel. The, it's the Rachel and Leah Center is the re-education center. That's right. I mean, certainly... And it was the same in the book, you know, the scene where the they, uh, you know, collectively tear apart the man who's been accused of, of sexual assault. Oh, um, the salvaging. Yes, the salvaging. The, the, but then oh, also... That, that's the participation, sorry. Yes. The, oh, the yes, yes, which is a great word, a great right. word. Um, but then also the scenes, the party scenes. They're just, there's something about that that was really fabulous. Sometimes like a in an audio adaptation, it can sound really cheesy to have a party scene, right? Like you hear like champagne glasses clinking and people being like, party sound, party sound, party sound. Um, but in this one, it was really unsettling and really, yeah, just, just trying to get through those conversations was really... Fabulous. Those those were the scenes that really stood out to me in terms of just like, oh, shivers. I want to go back to something you were saying earlier about um, the women in the Republic of Gilead that collaborate. Um, like the, the commander's wife, Serena Joy, the aunts at the re-education center. 
What do you what do you make of these women that are fighting so hard to have rights taken away from them? Oh, I mean, I, I was struck immediately by the parallels of this year and the fact that, you know, 54 percent of white women voted for Donald Trump. I mean, I think that's the part maybe more than anything else that feels the truest to me right now. And that felt like, oh, man, Margaret Atwood knew exactly what she was saying, um, which is just that there the majority of us um, will choose patriarchy will choose oppression will choose damage to others as long as it means we get taken care of um, as long as there's a sense of well I've got my piece of the pie uh, I, I I am you know gonna be rewarded under this system or receive something that feels worth it to me in order to um, throw other other women other types of women um, just into a corner. Um, yeah, man, that felt very true. Serena Joy, to me, I, I think this is also pretty intentional on the part of Atwood, uh, seems to be a, uh, a depiction of Phyllis Schlafly, uh, who, before she died last With year... With a little bit of Tammy Faye Baker, I would imagine. Sure. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about it. Yeah, one, one, Especially the bit about her, like, big, showy performances. Can we Can we talk about Tammy Faye Baker? Absolutely. So uh, weirdly, or perhaps not weirdly, uh, their son uh, would occasionally come speak at my church growing up, my parents' my parents' church. Um, if you're comfortable talking about it, I, I'd love to talk about um, how your your father broke away from that kind of damaging patriarchy uh, as a pastor. Uh, they were never a part of a tradition that was like wildly patriarchal any more than like the world is patriarchal, right? And we all have stuff to unlearn. Um, um, but so that was not not a part of my kind of growing up experience. Can can you talk about your your growing up inside the the liberal church? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's kind of funny because like I think liberal and I think like full Episcopalian. So I, I'm not quite sure if I could pinpoint on a map like where exactly um, my family would fall. But you know, my parents are both pastors. My mother was also a pastor, so. Um, you know, no question in terms of like the ordination of women or uh, the equal status of men and women in active religious life. Um, both my parents were um, really supportive when I came out um, and, you know, in general would have been people who would embrace things like the teaching of evolution in schools, evolution just as a, a viable explanation of human existence, uh, you know, the fact that the world is older than 5,000 uh, years uh, old, um, you know, uh, love of learning and of culture and, and not a sort of uh, reactionary, we must turn from the world. So um, definitely a different experience, I think, than the sort of like narrative of like, I grew up fundamentalist and then I went to college and learned a lot and I hated it and now I'm smart that, that can sometimes um, crop up a lot. Um, which did not, by the way, stop me from like going to college and becoming a jerk. But I don't, I don't want people listening to this series or listening to our conversation to like come away from this and feel like, oh, Christianity bad. You know, um, it, I, it's not my faith. I am a Jew, um, but I also like recognize that there's this wonderful li that it's not a monolith. You know that that your faith is not the faith of the bad guys. 
Right. Well, and I think we've certainly seen that too, right? And like, uh, I feel like there was this time not that long ago when like new atheism was kind of like, everyone was like, oh man, we're about to turn a corner. Stuff's about to get great. And then there's just like a lot of like sexist evo psych nonsense that came along with it. And that sort of like sense of, oh, ah, this is, is, this is still people. This is still imperfect people doing stuff like forgetting to question white supremacy and heteropatriarchy. And that's a shame. Um, so, you know, it's absolutely, it's all bad, right? Like any, pick a worldview, decide you want to oppress somebody with it, go to town, you'll be, you'll be able to make it happen. But of course there are also really unique ways in which you can use religion to uh, keep people down, right? I mean, there are ways in which you can convince a person to constantly interrogate their own soul, to monitor and surveil themselves, to constantly mistrust their own instincts, to feel that they owe eternal allegiance to someone or something else. Um, and to, you know, hate themselves for the way that they are intrinsically um so there is a unique power of of religion to warp and hurt that i think this book also expresses really well yeah i think there's a lot of um just built-in gaslighting that that the the framers of the republic of gilead purposefully inserted into the like the way they designed the world um i keep thinking about um, you know, there's this auto church, right? Uh, and they they continually, like, change Bible passages one word at a time until you don't notice how different it is because you're not given a copy of the book anymore. I, I think, too, of one of the things that I think is done really well is the sense that there's not, like, good and bad men in this world because everyone eventually went along with it. Like, there's that great bit where she's thinking about conversations with her husband where he's seeking to reassure her and she has that moment of is he trying to reassure me is or is he already trying to dismiss me and how easy is this going to be for him um and that sort of sense of panic as you realize kind of like you were saying with the story of um i already forget the name of it, the star traders of just that moment of oh they're gonna do it they're absolutely going to do it, even if they think. And I, I'm reminded again too, like to to bring it back to the election, just that moment of how often you would hear someone say something like, "Well, of course I don't like this," you know, fill in the blank, horribly racist uh, or or sexually violent thing about Trump. But it's really important to me that factories stay in Ohio. Um, and just when you realize someone has already made a trade off that involves overlooking the humanity of another person and you just realize oh they've already found a way to be comfortable with this and that's horror yeah it's it's been kind of hard to be scared by other stuff like by fiction lately it almost feels cute because like even the well, I don't know. I mean, the reality of 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 the Republic of Gilead still denies my existence and yours, right? Like, you would be sent off to the colonies as an unwoman, and in the world of the book, I would have been allegedly deported to Israel, but probably just dumped in the water outside of, like, Boston Harbor or something. Yeah, but of course there's, you know, uh, yeah, there's just, every. let's go with everything scary. Um, but, but also ways in which I, I am reluctant to think 
how would I suffer in the Republic of Gilead? Because I think for me, at least, especially in light of that number of 54% of white women, um, the question that I, I sort of get to ask myself repeatedly in this, you know, new state of affairs is not how do I stand to suffer? Um, but what are ways in which I am already complicit in or benefiting from, um, these policies that I oppose profoundly? Um, so I, tr I, it's, it's tempting, right? I would, you know, that would be part of the pleasure of reading this book for me. And I use pleasure, not in the sense of tra-la-la, this is fun, but like when you, when you read something like this, you are seeking, or you do have a certain emotional experience and there would be a certain type of pleasure in thinking that would be me. I would suffer like this. These are the people I am suffering with. Here is our solidarity. Here is what we can do to resist instead of looking at it and say, who is missing um, what are ways in which I would be able to, um, you know, ways in which queerness is not treated the same way as race, right? Like her friend who was turned into a Jezebel does so in large part because she insists on not recloseting herself. But that is an option. Um, whereas the, the line about the children of Ham um, being resettled, that is, there is no option there. Um, so trying to, trying to bear that in mind, I think. How do we fend off the Republic of Gilead? How do we how do we requeer and rebrown like this this oppressive world as created? Man, you know I think it starts with noticing and asking who's missing from this story, um, and and then thinking what would this story look like, or what other stories are there that do not exclude these people? Um, I, I think you know, and it's different for everybody, right? Like everybody's affected by all this in so many different ways. So I don't know that I would say there's like one, here's what everyone needs to be doing. Like, I think for me, um, part of it involves, uh, staying present on, on current events and what's going on, being in really regular contact with my state and, and local representatives, um, sparing money, which, which I, I do have right now, like I have money to make donations and figuring out places that I think, um, could use my money and would, would, um, be good stewards of it for other people. It's going to mean, you know, just staying alive, um, you know, uh, fighting, uh, at the local, at the city, at the state, at the federal level, whenever possible. And like, you know, the, the standing rock, um, the, the people who are resisting the Dakota pipeline are, you know, about to go in for another round. Um, and, and for everybody, there's sort of a different, like, um, it may not be appropriate for you to be there personally, but to figure out, uh, what do people need to listen to what they're saying that they need on the ground, um, to offer support in a way that is not about, um, uh, getting some sort of public adulation for, uh, doing something right, but for figuring out like what's actually needed. Like, do I need to go show up and get pictures taken of me or do people need bottled water and gloves? Um, yeah. And, and sort of figuring out what's an effective use of my resources, what resources do I have? Um, and, and where can they best be used? I think are, are really important questions. So not to give in to despair, but to wake up and say, what good shall I do this day? And you can do that and then take a break in despair for a little while. I sure. think that like you can do both. You can despairingly do good. Um, and that's that's fantastic. Or something. I mean, that's kind of Rebecca Solnit's whole thing, isn't it? Not giving in to, to cynicism, but 
allowing yourself to to do good through it i think yeah i mean that makes it and i think you can be cynical and do good i absolutely think that um you can be a cynical person who does good um if if nothing else like action movies from the 90s have taught me that the cynical guy can show up at the last minute and do something fabulous so like I wouldn't worry too much about like monitoring your own emotional state, you know, like if you if you have a cynical day or month, that's fine, honestly. Um, but but hopefully not the type of cynicism that says it's better to do nothing because um, there's different forms of cynicism, I think. And um, yeah, and, and don't you know, the, the, so the whole like um like that the phrase that I'm looking for isn't exactly like internal migration, but it's like, um, becoming an internal, uh, like what's that word for Americans who live abroad? Emigre. Is that what it is? Uh, expat expat. Yeah. In, in internal expats. And I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. I, I haven't. It's kind of, that fabulous. sounds like something a therapist of mine used to say, <laughs> but I, I'm curious. I'm curious to hear what you mean by it. Um, well, I, I, you know, there's there's plenty of criticism about the whole sort of like, I'll move to Canada if such and such a thing comes to pass thing, which I, I understand both the criticism and the impulse. Um, but internal becoming an internal expat is a sort of um, condition that has been like documented in other societies where like something dreadful happens and people with a lot of resources, with a lot of means, with some money, with some free time. Um, take that opportunity uh, to just disengage entirely from public life. Um, and so stay in the country, but devote themselves entirely to um, recreation, to reading, to pleasure, to family and friends um, in a way that uh, completely removes them from any sort of like active engagement with whatever uh, wrong is being perpetrated. And, and that, I think, is something that's much much likelier to happen than a lot of uh, like wealthy white liberals moving to Canada. I think Netflix is sort of our internal Canada. And that's not that Netflix isn't fabulous. That's not like everybody sleep on a hair shirt mattress and drink push-ups for breakfast and then go call your representative 80 hours a day. I don't mean that. I don't mean anyone should be like flogging themselves, but to really and again, these are questions that I think you should ask yourself if you are in a relative position of like uh, position uh, privilege, right? And I, I know that that's kind of a, a squishy word in some ways, um, and and everyone sort of has to answer it differently for themselves. But to be aware, like if you have um, financial resources, if you have like class stability, if you have white privilege or cis privilege, like these are things to bear in mind and to say, am I? kind of co-opting the language of self-care and using that to justify a certain type of personal isolationism, right? Like we were talking earlier about like the sort of reactionary policies of if we ignore the rest of the world and just focus on America, we will emerge like a beautiful triumphant butterfly. Um, this sort of sense of, I don't know what to do. It feels so overwhelming. I can't be think of where to begin. So I'm just going to do things that feel pleasant call it self-care, um, and not do as much as I can, um, in order to just sort of like give myself a lot of pedicures and watch, um, TV shows a lot, um, and, and sort of check out. What would you recommend people go read or listen to after they hear this adaptation or read the book? 
there's a there's an author her name's um Nettie uh, Okorafar and she's written a couple different fabulous um science fiction books. I think uh Who Fears Death is the start of her series. Um and it's set in like a post-apocalyptic future um uh village. I think the village's name is Okeki. Um okay. and it's it's fantastic. Um, and I would say to name is spelled uh, Nnedi. It's N N E D I O K O R A F O R, and it's you know fabulous kind of marriage of fantasy, religions, hard sci-fi, in in a way that I think is is really fascinating and and wonderful and then i also think this is not uh based in the future but the moore's account by Leila lalami um is a fictionalized version of a of a true story which is that um uh in gosh uh was it the early early 1500s um there was a, a Spanish expedition that was supposed to just be going through Florida that ended up sort of accidentally um, traveling across most of the American continent. And, and there was an enslaved man with him who was known only as Estebanico, but um, he, he was, you know, an, an enslaved African man, a Muslim, hmm. was one of the first people to travel all across the American continent. Um, and that's sort of cool. yeah his his interactions with various peoples that's fabulous and i think the last one um that's uh, i will also throw in uh, by the way recommendation for w.e.b du bois's um biography of john brown i've been um okay i think that's always worth a read it's like a fascinating chapter in american history and the story of how that book got published is also fascinating he got really shafted by his editors in a way that's um fascinating to read about and then the last one would be uh the counter-revolution of 1776 which came out i think last year is by gerald horn um and it's uh just a kind of great like parallel of it's 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 really accessible like it's very much for laymen um and it's just sort of like what were the counter revolutions um of various enslaved people in the north american colonies that were going on at the same time as the american revolution um and that's i think a, a really important thread of history to to be aware of Mallory thank you so much for coming on secrets crimes and audio tape thanks so much for having me ask yourself when you encounter stories of any kind who's missing here are you becoming an internal expat? From the sounds of it, probably not. Thanks for sticking with us through that conversation. I hope you learned as much as I did. Let me know what you thought. We're at Radio Drama on Twitter. If you want to hear Mallory dispense wisdom to the masses, you can do that by subscribing to Dear Prudence over at Slate. Her podcast and her column are fabulous. Mallory's book, Texts from Jane Eyre, is almost certainly available at your local bookstore. And if it isn't, ask one of the nice people behind the counter to order it for you, because it is a gold-dang laugh riot. All of Mallory's other online writing is equally divided between the subjects of raccoons, art history, and Dwayne the Rock Johnson. She's an American treasure. And you know what? So are you. You are a treasure of your respective nations. Listener, thank you for listening to Radio Drama Revival. Our theme music is Danger Digidoo by DJ Stranger Danger. Our line producers are Matthew Boudreaux and Eli McElveen. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreaux. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.